Hello and welcome to the Purdue Ag Econ Podcast, the podcast for experts and innovators in agriculture. I'm Dane Erickson. On this episode, my co-host Dr. Ken Foster and I sit down for a conversation with world-renowned researcher, author, and our very own department head, Dr. Jason Lusk. We will discuss everything from how COVID impacts food security to the latest news out of the Ag Econ Department. Stay tuned. Hello, you're listening to the Purdue Agricultural Economics Podcast. My name is Ken Foster. I'm a professor of agricultural economics at Purdue. And with me is my co-host, Dane Erickson, who is a senior at Purdue. Dane, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, How's the spring semester going so far for you and your peers? It's been pretty smooth so far. Uh, I'm grateful to be back on campus. Uh, I've been tested a bunch and I'm really thankful for all the testing capacity that Purdue has has gotten over break. So yeah, just happy to be back. Uh, Dr. Lusk, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. So Dr. Lusk, I know there are a lot of things that have been going on behind the scenes that maybe uh, other people don't realize all that it takes to you know, get a semester up and running. So could you just talk a little bit about all of the goings on in the department, what it's taken to get uh, this year up and running? Well, sure. Um, And certainly Dr. Foster can weigh in here too. He he had my job before me and he's been doing a similar job in food science. So he had to live through a lot of this. Um, Probably like a lot of professions, it felt like from about March till uh, August, probably was one of the more stressful periods in my professional career that, that I can remember, you know, we had the very early days whenever, you know, in, in middle of March there, when we really shut down and moved to online immediately. So in that, that immediate aftermath, a lot of what we were doing was trying to help faculty and students transition their classes online. You know, what can we do? How, how should we be doing this? What tips and tools and tricks can we use to um, help people understand how people learn better effectively online. How can we test uh, students or, you know, follow through on our grading and metrics when we can't be in person? So there was a lot of that sort of stuff that was happening in the aftermath. And then, um, you know, almost immediately after that, there was the planning for the fall semester. And I think even amongst a lot of our faculty, I don't think they really realized, you know, when I asked faculty, you know, what do you think about your mode of instruction for their fall? They think, they, you know, the response was, why are we thinking about the fall already? It's March. I said, well, actually, we normally decide this in March, you know, because you got, you know, uh, 40,000 students on campus. They get, you got, you know, thousands of classes. They have to be scheduled to a time and a location. And they were de-densifying the classroom. So, um, you know, they, the general rule of thumb was if a classroom had, a hun- you know, 100 seats, that we could only fit 50 in there. So about half. So that meant, again, if, if, you know, most of our classes due to the growth we've had at Purdue, we're at maximum capacity. So what are you going to do? And we also knew that our students said they wanted to have as much in person as they could. So, you know, there was just the delicate balance of trying to work with faculty, some of whom had concerns about being in the classroom with the demand of the students to want more in person with how are we going to do it if all the students can't be in the classroom at the same time. And so there's lots of you know, individual discussions with faculty, upper administration in terms of what the plans were for testing and how that was going to be rolled out. 
one thing I'll, I'll definitely, I know one can, you know, complain or, or um, take issue with particular details of, of how Purdue went about things. But one thing I can say that I, I think was really good is, again, whether you like the decision or not, the fact that Mitch Daniels, their upper administration, very early on said, you know, we're, we're going to go online as, I mean, on, in person as much as we can. Um, and it set the stage and the expectation for what we were going to do, even though all the details had to be worked out. And I say that in part because I talked to colleagues around the country who, you know, just weeks before classes started in the fall, you know, their administration was still flopping around, <laughs> not really sure what they were going to do. And it created for a lot more uncertainty and, um, and consternation, I think, both among students and faculty. So I really appreciate the leadership we had. Again, I think one can argue, you know, whether it was the right or wrong decision, but I think the fact that we had put put a stake in the ground and worked really hard towards it, at least it gave us some sense of direction and where we needed to be heading. And I think our, you know, our IT people here at Purdue really stepped up in the end too, because, um, you know, you talk about teaching in person, uh, that sounds easy, right? Just go to class and teach like you normally do. And I found out very quickly last fall that at any given point, there were going to be students in quarantine. And that meant you really had to teach your course to two groups of students, the ones who could come to class and the ones who couldn't. Um, they did, I don't think I had any students who tested positive um, last semester, but I always had students who couldn't come to class. And that meant you know, finding some way to teach to both groups. And the IT staff did a great job of equipping classrooms with writable monitors and uh, you know, recording mechanisms so that we could record everything that went on in class and post it online for the students who couldn't be there. So, so yeah, and part of that, I think, was, uh, as you said, Jason, um, the administration just saying, we're going to do this, and then everybody else figuring out how to get it done. <laughs> yeah, I think as a rough approximation, most faculty that were teaching essentially doubled their teaching load because they had to teach a version in person and then didn't have a version of that was also available online for, for students that were in quarantine. So Jason, one of the other things that uh, appears to have happened in the Ag Econ department is that we've lost a few colleagues lately and not, lo not lost as in passed away, but lost as in retired. Um, maybe some of our listeners who are out there um, outside of Purdue had some of these people for professors and might be curious about being brought up to date as to uh, who has taken the retirement opportunity. Yeah. So yes, I've got a few gray hairs uh, trying to fill the holes and figure out how we're going to continue to teach the classes we have and, and do the outreach that we, we need to do to, to serve uh, folks in Indiana. But we've had a, a lot of departures. So even last year before the pandemic, um, Otto Doring officially retired. Wally Tyner had pa passed away. So you know, we'd had some retirements and departures even before this, but um, really over this past year had a, had a significant number of departures. So one of those, Chris Hurt, had already retired earlier this summer. And, um, you know, that that folks who uh, pr probably no doubt heard him give an outlook talk somewhere in the state. So he, he was really impactful in that regard. And then the College of Agriculture chose to offer a retirement incentive uh, in, in part to deal with some of the board budget shortfalls that came about from COVID. And we had a large uptake from that. So I hope I don't miss anybody's names, but here, here are the folks that took 
took the college up on that and, and officially retired around Christmas time. So Tim Baker, Craig Dobbins, Larry DeBoer, Joan Fulton, uh, Jim Eels, Paul Preckle, and John Sanders. So those folks were sort of 100% AgiCon. In addition to that, Marshall Martin, who's, who mainly was in the, in the administration uh, in the College of Agriculture, but also still had a 25% appointment with us here in AgiCon. He also retired, and then Bo Ballou, who was a director of PCRD, the Purdue Center for Regional Development, also had an AgiCon appointment. He, he also is, is retiring. So if I count all those, let's see, that's 10. So that's, um, that's a lot. And so you just think about all the work those 10 people were doing. Um, it's a little stressful to think about replacing all of those. But the good news is we have been able to have uh, hire back some of that capacity already in previous years. So two years ago, we brought in two new faculty and two endowed chair positions. Mindy Mallory uh, took our Clearing Corporation chair in, in agricultural marketing, Todd Keithy has our Schrader family chair in farmland economics. And then this year in August, despite all the COVID problems, we had two new faculty that started. Um, Kajal Gulati, she works in international development and Tor Tolhurst is in the area of policy, ag policy. And then we're, we're doing two searches right now um, and have been trying to manage those uh, virtually as best we can. So hopefully in the next fall, we'll have two new faculty starting as well. So even though we've had a lot of departures, we have um, you know, had the capacity to hire and bring folks on. And so that, that's exciting. At the same time, we're, we're sad to see some of our colleagues go. We're also excited about the future and where we're heading next. Dr. Lusk, I know you've spent a lot of your career talking about the direct ways in which people interact with food directly. And I, along with, I think, almost every other uh, Ag Econ student has your book, Unnaturally Delicious, <laughs> on my shelf. Um, but I want to think back to a, around a year ago, back to the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, food security issues were, were huge. They're in the news. There were food banks where, um, you know, everyone was talking about local food drives. But that's sort of fallen out of the news cycle. So... What are sort of the uh, issues in, in food security in our community and in the country as a whole right now, a year into this pandemic? You get really conflicting messages depending on what information you look at. So we, we all saw those you know, images and pictures of the lines at food banks. And I haven't seen a lot of data on this, but just anecdotally talking to folks that interact with food banks they really did see a, a significant uptick in, in demand and need for, for products. And so that, that would seem to suggest there really are, had, was a significant increase in food security. At the same time, I've, I've seen several studies that, that measure food insecurity. They do it through a series of survey questions. Um, so that our official government measure of food insecurity, it's important for people to realize it's not, they don't ask necessarily, are you hungry? The question is essentially something along the lines of, can you afford to buy as much food as you as you want? So there, there's a bunch of questions that are sort of like that, and they aggregate them to determine levels of food, food insecurity. And those really haven't changed that much in most of the surveys I've seen in the wake of the pandemic, which is a little surprising because it doesn't correspond with what you see at the food banks. 
Um, now, there is some evidence that among households with children, the food insecurity has had, there is sort of a notice, noticeable uptick. So I think one of the things that may be happening is, are those uh, relief payments that came out from those COVID relief bills that, you know, households got those $600 checks for each person in the household. And if you look at data on household incomes, it actually increased quite significantly uh, you know, this spring and summer as those checks came in at the aggregate level, at least. And, and likewise, correspondingly, um, so people had this extra government payment and then uh, people aren't spending as much. They're not going out to eat as often. They're not traveling as much. And so correspondingly, the savings rate jumped up quite a bit as well. And still today is higher, you know, and, you know, than it normally is in sort of, in sort of historical terms. So, so I think it just goes to show how much, um, you know, money was pumped into the economy through these support programs. But I don't want to say that there's no food insecurity because I think there is, and there's certainly there's certainly enough evidence out there that there are pockets of society and people that are going hungry um, and that are falling through the cracks as, as far as that goes. So I, I think, um, but, but at the same time, I think the broader picture is one that's a little more positive than might first meet the eye. Well, that's encouraging news, although I know a lot of people are struggling right now to make ends meet, but you know, it's like many things, it's, there's always a, a silver lining. There's there's two stories to everything right now in this country, so. Well, we can all probably remember that New York Times uh, article that showed the spike in uh, unemployment. You know, they had this graph that went off the page almost, you know, because of the spike in unemployment. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, the, in these relief programs, there, there were a lot of, um, you know, the unemployment insurance and those payments also ramped up alongside that. So, so there was some offset that happened there, but, you know, that's sort of, probably not very much uh, consolation if you're the person that lost your job because you know, you still got all that uncertainty about what's going to happen when um, that employment insurance, you know, rolls off or, you know, what, whatever else. So I, th I think, you know, even if I can make you monetarily the same, it doesn't mean you're, you're psychologically the same. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I think the devil is probably in the details there, right? I mean, if you've still got your job, but you're working remotely, you're saving a lot on gas, and that's probably shifting expenditure shares from, you know, um, transportation to food and things like that. But if, you know, if you're a factory worker with the same wage, you're still having to commute, um, you're probably no worse off than you were before, no better off than you were before. But, but some of those people that that lost their jobs, um, you know, or, or were already food insecure because they were struggling to find employment, probably things got a little tighter for. I think that's, that's true. And I think, you know, you think about the frontline workers sort of in COVID and those kind of things, but, you know, my guess is there's a pretty strong negative correlation between, um, you know, household income and whether you've got a job, you got to show up and be there in, despite the pandemic. Right. You know, we're, we're all talking by Zoom here. We're, we're distanced from each other. We can have jobs. You know, we just talked about professors showing up and teaching. Um, but, you know, that's for a couple hours a day, maybe. Um, or, you know, and then even a lot of that moved online. But, you know, if you're working 
at a checkout register or in a meatpacking plant, you know, you got to show up to work. <laughs> yeah. And so they, they didn't get to move to the virtual world like a lot of other folks. And so I think the effects of the pandemic are not evenly spread out throughout society, even though none of us like it. Yeah, certainly. I think those people are feeling more, more inherent stress from it than, than some of the rest of us. In fact, I, I think um, for some of us working remotely, it's going to be hard to go back to, to the office. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 I kind of miss the office some days just for the human interaction, but, uh, but I can imagine, you know, this idea that I don't, you know, have to get up and commute to work and um, it might be a little, a little reluctance there to head, head back in. I saw two people yesterday in one of our conference rooms up here on campus. They were on you know, opposite ends of this long conference table to be socially distanced. Uh, it was Maria Marshall and Michael Wilcox. Yeah. But I saw that, and I, you know, I, I was so happy. I said, it's just so great to see, you know, a, a, an in-person conference happening that doesn't involve Zoom. Although, you know, that's an interesting, you know, the, the, uh, the rise of virtual meetings, I think is an interesting topic too, that um, conversations with our students might might be important to have. So last fall, I, I pointed out to my students that they weren't coming to the virtual office hours the way they used to come to uh, physical office hours in the past. And the sense was they just weren't comfortable with um, the virtual interaction yet. Um, and, you know, I kind of chastised them a little bit and said, I think you need to get comfortable with that virtual interaction because the job market uh, right now is a virtual job market and your interviews are going to be virtual and spending a little time, you know, refining your virtual presence was probably an important skill set that's going to spill over uh, more than likely, I think, into their future careers because I just can't imagine that um, there won't be fewer in-person sales calls and more selling um, and business interactions that take place virtually going forward now that we're just a little bit more comfortable with that platform. I think you're right, Ken, and it's not, it's a, it's a skill to learn <laughs> like a lot of others. And, you know, when do you mute? When do you unmute? When is it okay to jump in? You know, it, it just takes a while. I, I was talking actually this morning to uh, Dr. Widmar, Nicole Widmar. She's teaching farm management this semester. She's teaching it uh, mainly online, but she was actually saying she's had more interactions through students so far this semester. So maybe Ken, to your point, may, maybe the students have figured out this, uh, you know, how, how to interact a little better, or maybe she's just managing her classroom in a way that's encouraged uh, more, you know, more drop-ins into her open Zoom sessions. Dr. Lusk, I just want to give you an opportunity to give a message to the Ag Econ students out there. Um, just words of wisdom to, to leave with the students. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's a tough thing to say. Um, I actually listened to a podcast recently where somebody, uh, the guy said, uh, uh, every time you hear somebody say, follow your passion, he says, I think that's just bunk. <laughs> and, um, because that's, that's normally what you say to students, right? Um, I think there is an element of truth to that, that I thoroughly enjoy my job. And so it doesn't, I always feel like work because I get to do what I want to do. But at the same time, sometimes you uh, you learn to enjoy things by doing them. And you don't always know what that what that's going to be. And so I think at, at the stage that students are in now, one of their strategies is to 
um, try lots of different things and sort of maximize their options. And I think there's a tendency, a lot of pressure to think, what's my career path going to be? Uh, I'm sitting here telling you as head of the AgiCon department, I don't even know what my career path is going to end up being, you know, so it's, it's not a path, it's many possible paths. And I think particularly when you're younger and uh, you got more time in front of you, the opportunity cost you trying something is small. <laughs> and um, so that would be my encouragement is to engage in lots of different things, work hard at something. Sometimes through that hard work, you find out what you enjoy. You don't always know that beforehand. Okay, you've been listening to the Purdue Agricultural Economics Podcast. You can visit the department at www.agecon.purdue.edu. Uh, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Have a good day.